Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Parliament returns today as we discuss that and more with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. What do we need to know about Canada's donation to the Ukraine war effort? We'll give you the latest on that. And we cover all things in American politics with Washington correspondent for Global News, Jennifer Johnson. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, it's back to work in Ottawa today. Uh, MPs return after their Christmas break or midwinter break, whatever it is they want to call it. Uh, and uh, among the items there, such as health care, such as inflation, etc., uh, federal New Democratic leader Jagmeet Singh says he wants to call on the House of Commons to hold an emergency debate about what he calls the privatization of health care. Rob Westgate has the story. It's a top priority for the leader as members of Parliament return to the House following a holiday break. Now, Singh spent some of that time away holding roundtable discussions on health care in British Columbia, discussing emergency room overcrowding and worker shortages. He says health care is already understaffed, and he believes for-profit facilities will actually poach doctors and nurses away from hospitals. That is, of course, in response to Ontario's announcement earlier this month that it is moving some procedures to publicly funded private facilities to address a growing surgery wait list. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Well, let's jump right into that about what's going to be happening in Ottawa. Lots to talk about, and uh, I think the one thing that all the leaders can can agree on, the consensus here, is that there's a lot of work unfinished. And as to how much they're actually going to get done in this session, well, we'll find out. Let's ask our next guest. She is Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is this sort of like first day of school that everybody's back? It's been a few months right now. And, you know, the excitement, well, maybe not so much excitement, uh, but anticipation, I guess, of what could happen. That's it. It is. It does have that feeling kind of like a first day of school. That's a good way to put it. It's cold here in Ottawa and lots of snow yesterday. But I think um, this this is going to be interesting because the, I think the issues that the legislature is going to deal with all year, but definitely in this first half are going to be really pivotal, right? Like the just transition, the healthcare, um, they're going to be dealing with the the gun law still, um, changes to, the, to official languages, like a whole kind, a whole bunch of things that are going to be really important and are going to, many of them are going to have the effect of, of exacerbating regional tensions. They're going to put a lot of pressures on the leaders to kind of, you know, say where they are on things. And this is going to be, I think, a really interesting time for those of us who watch Parliament. Is the government casting the net too too widely here? I mean, trying to get too much done here? You've just even touched on a few of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, he's going to butt heads with uh, Daniel Smith in Alberta about the the energy program going forward. Uh, As you mentioned, the Quebec situation is is going to rise up and bite him once again. And we already know the Premier Legault loves a good fight. Uh, And the two big issues, inflation and healthcare right now. I mean, realistically, uh, do you see them building a consensus and moving the the yardsticks on, on any of these? I mean, I think in some cases they have to, like when you look at the healthcare, for example, um, if they get a deal and it, it looks like they will, they're all saying they will. So if they get a deal, that'll be in the budget. And so I think that gives Jagmeet Singh a bit of a buffer from looking like he's backing private healthcare, because when Doug Ford says he's going to introduce more privatization, that's going to come in waves, it's going to come in stages. And Trudeau and the liberals are basically saying, yeah, look, like, you know, we, we can call that innovation. 
And they're trying to distance themselves, I think, from, you know, kind of putting their arms around privatization in any big way. But they're saying, look, the provinces need to go and make their own decisions about what's best. We are here to provide funds and conditions within certain parameters as outlined by the Canada Health Act. But otherwise, it's up to the provinces to decide. Singh does not want to get too close to any sort of, you know, embracing whole scale privatization. We know that there's privatization in the system already. I think what Ford is proposing is is something that that over time is going to get to be quite diff like is going to be quite different than what we know now. But I think for Singh, like the fact that it's going to be in the budget rather than a standalone bill will give him a bit more of an opportunity to get through that politically because his base is going to be looking for him to protect the public system. Well, and even on the uh, Sunday news shows, of course, uh, Health Minister Duclos said they're going to, I thought it was the phrase he used, work flexibly uh, with mm-hmm. the provinces, which basically means uh, we're not just going to give you the money and say, go have a nice day, uh, but they're going to be pretty flexible about what kind of guardrails they set up. I think they have to be at this point, because as he said, right, like they, the provinces have different needs. Some of them are actually doing okay when it comes to the percentage of people who have a family doctor or a family, you know, family clinic kind of thing. And then in other provinces is not going so well. And so to give the, the premiers some opportunity to direct the funds within certain parameters will actually help the system overall. But this is a, con- a consist, I think it's a, a significant departure from not that long ago in our political history where any discussion of increased privatization any sense that politicians were willing to open that door gave rise to real concerns about a slippery slope and a possible two-tiered system and possibly losing the integrity of the public system. And there are still lots and lots of concerns about that. For example, like how we would deal there with pre-existing staff pressures if we create more more private um, delivery. Like what? where are we going to get the people? Where is that all going to come from? What is that going to mean for the public sector, for the public healthcare system? And so none of those questions are answered at this point. We're still talking about hypotheticals in some ways. So this is a moment for Trudeau and the Liberals to get this through. But at the same time, as you say, they're asking a lot of this parliament. And I think because Singh is saying that he'll give them the year to come up with pharmacare, that's Singh saying we won't have an election this year. I'm going to give this the year. But after that, maybe he'll look to try to find some conditions that it would be good for the NDP to go. Who knows what's going to happen this year? And for his part, Pierre Polyev wants to be able to hammer away at the cost of living and affordability. And Justin Trudeau doesn't know or care about what you're living. And he's going to try to avoid getting wedged on issues like the just transition and healthcare. Yeah, we uh, talked to Mr. Polyev in the program last week, and he's uh, he's, he's he's pretty much uh, dug in on on those two issues. You know, Canada's broken. Canada's broken. And yep. and I, I mean, I can't help but think you know this is variations on the Trump campaign. You know that, I, and I alone can fix it. He just hasn't used that phrase yet, but he's inferring that uh, with uh, the speeches that he's made so far. I found it interesting too last week. I mean, after slamming the quote unquote mainstream liberal media. Uh, he did a lot of media hits last week, I guess, in anticipation of this. So maybe he understands that, uh, you know, you've got to get out there and you've got to get the word out, not just preach on Twitter. That's it. And I think, um, like, it seems like they were sort of managing his his entree into the political world as leader of the party in a way that was maybe less, tr- you know, not what we're used to. So when he first won the thing back in September, like, yeah, for all, for those months, he was pretty much allergic to doing any interviews with, with, you know, traditional media. He, and he's distanced himself for a while, but now over the past week. Yeah. And Melissa Lansman also gave that indication about a week or a week and a half ago that we'd see a lot more of Pierre Polyev in advance of this return to parliament. So I think he's, he's trying to do a few things, right? Like he's going into small rooms across the country, building support. 
in places where, you know, those those votes might be enough to flip a seat that is currently liberal and might go toward the conservatives if if there's a sense of voter fatigue with the liberals and there is. But there's also, you know, getting people getting to know Pierre Polyev in areas where he's not necessarily as popular at this point. And so I think he's trying to run a couple of strategies at once, which he did during the leadership race and, and, you know, did successfully, obviously. But he's looking at, like, how am I going to get to that point where I've, I've got a plurality of seats or, you know, he'd, he'd want a majority of seats, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he's he's figuring out just the math of it, like how, how to get that done. I, I don't know in all the years we've been covering politics on the federal level anyway that we have ever experienced a circumstance like we are right now. Uh, you've got the two main parties, the, the conservatives and the liberals, who usually are finishing one, two, and that work in reverse, of course. But both leaders of those parties are trailing their parties in popularity. Uh, a lot of people, the majority of the ones through most of the polls we've seen, uh, are leaning towards the conservatives over the liberals, but they don't like Polyev. And we have, I think, detailed in great deal about, you know, Mr. Trudeau's uh, standing right now, uh, even within his own caucus. I know there's a lot of rumbling. Nobody seems to want to say anything about this. But how how does how did both those leaders rationalize this? That, uh, you know, we, we kind of think maybe it's time for a change, but not you. Or, you know, are you really coming back again? Because that's what I'm hearing in the halls. And I, I wanted to get your read on what you've heard over the last few days now that everybody's filtering in back to Ottawa. Are they confident in their in their their, their leaders? I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's such a peculiar situation. I think for a long time, like Trudeau, Trudeau positioned himself in 2013 as a savior of the party. And when we think about it, at that time, the liberals were in third place where they had never been before. They had 34 seats in the House. Trudeau became leader in April of 2013, made a whole bunch of changes to the way the party ran itself. Um, did a, a lot of kind of making the party over again in his own image and, you know, not always taking the help that was offered from the institutional, the, you know, from the people who had been part of the party for a long time. And then in the 2015 election, he won 184 seats and formed a majority government. And people really credited Trudeau with that. And, and that includes the caucus. The, the MPs were very, you know, felt a very strong sense of loyalty to him. And the fact that they they felt they wouldn't have won the seats without him necessarily. A lot of them did. But now you can see that his brand, yeah, is is not as strong as the party's. But how we suck at leaders' transition, right? We, we are bad at that because we don't have term limits for leaders. And so there's a sense of, you know, if a, if a leader's getting a bit stale, when do you initiate the conversation? How do you do that? Does the leader figure that out himself? And it doesn't seem like Trudeau is is making that decision at this point. But I did think that his his speech to his caucus, which was you know televised last week that we could see, he wasn't as strong, if you ask me, as Polyev in connecting. Polyev is starting to find a voice that is not as angry, which is good, but for him, but is still you know concerned and suitably upset and disappointed with how the liberals have governed govern the country. And so if he can keep going with that, he might find that he picks up more support in places that are tired of Trudeau and looking for somewhere else to put the vote. Well, because they both got their own challenges there, don't they? I mean, the conservatives, yeah. just by the nature of the last four or five years, uh, they give their leader, their newly appointed leader, usually one election. If it doesn't work out, boom, they you know they they hit the yeah. trap door and they're gone. Uh, and I, I don't know if Polyev is going to suffer the same fate. I guess we'll have to wait until that next election. But it's the it's the, t- the total reverse of that, of course, in the liberal situation. Uh, as a number of our colleagues have been reporting from Ottawa the last couple of weeks, a lot of the people in the caucus are thinking, uh, you know, as you say, he made 
have been the guy that got me elected in 2015, but now he might be the reason why I'm not going to get elected uh, whenever the next election is. And, and, and the problem with the liberals is there is no right of succession. There's nobody stepping yeah. up and saying, well, that's that's who's the, who's going to lead this party if the prime minister steps down. It was going to be Christian Freeland for a while. It looks like that's not going to happen if she even sticks around. And uh, mm -hmm. they, they just don't know which way they want to go here, do they? And it's partly, I think, because we, we don't allow for those kind of net, well, I mean, not we, but it doesn't seem like there's an oxygen allowed for a conversation about who's going to be the next leader. It would be seen as disloyal to the current leader to start talking about the next one. And I mean, that's, again, systemic because we don't have we don't have term limits for leaders. And so there's, we're not forced to have the conversation about who's coming next. But I think for the liberals at this point, yeah, like they, they are dealing with a leader who literally saved them. And now it's, it's a conversation about how long he's going to stick around, but it's never an absolute thing. It's always a relative thing. And so if they're looking over at Pierre Polyev, who also has, you know, even if he's finding a, a kind of new groove sort of thing, He's still obviously got limitations on his growth. He is a polarizing person. There are some people who are never going to vote for Pierre Polyev, no matter what he does, and stop listening to him if they ever did a long time ago. And so if you've got someone with the name recognition and the familiarity and someone who campaigns really well, like Trudeau, do you leave him there to run against Polyev? Because it might be a safer bet than trying somebody new who Polyev could very effectively frame and define. Because that's always been the conservative strategy, right, is to define the liberal leader before they can define themselves. And then that's it. Right? Like the, it's very difficult for the other leader to recover at that point. No one's going to define Trudeau that way because his brand, whether you like it or not, is too well known. So I, don't, I, think, I think it's a risk either way. Yeah, and and the, the the concern here too, of course, is the direction the party wants to take, and you know the mm -hmm. the quote unquote blue liberals, the Paul Martins, the John Manleys, uh, you know David Dodge, who used to be the deputy minister of finance, are all saying, hey, is there a place for us in this party? But by mm -hmm. the same token, I know we're just about out of time here. Is that uh, there was rumblings about this in the prime minister in the in the liberal caucus in the last two elections too, and uh, it, it, he didn't get the majority government, but he did win government both times. So you don't know what's going to happen. And uh, do you write this guy off like that? I, I think they might do so at their own peril. I think so too. And I mean, I, I remember too. You and I talked about that Jeffrey Simpson column about whether or not there's still a place in the Liberal Party for that kind of blue side or the business friendly and, you know, wh where would John Manley, Paul Martin, you know, fit in this particular party? And so we might, I think we're looking at a different party system overall than we were 20 years ago. And it's possible that if we, we've got these, you know, the bloc is doing well, the NDP are doing well, the conservatives are actually leading in the popular vote and have the last two elections, and then you've got the government. And so in a party system like that, where are you going to get a majority? Like maybe it's just not there. And if the liberals and the NDP are going to continue to split the progressive vote, it makes it much harder. And the conservatives, even when they win the popular vote, don't, you know, the last two times they haven't formed a government. So there seems to be, you know, something's got to break here at some point. But there also seems to be a lot of people who feel orphaned politically, right? There's like none of the parties is saying the thing I want it to say, but I, if I want to vote, I'm stuck voting for somebody. So voter turnout is going to be interesting whenever we do have this election. But I think there's there's a way in which the party system is not mapping properly onto the the views and preferences of many people. And so there's there's a distortion here, which, again, is going to increase. That's why we have two leaders that are polarizing. That shouldn't be right. If democracy is working right, we shouldn't have the leaders of the two main parties. And nobody likes them all that much, right? Like this is, this is a strange thing we have here. It's very strange. Laurie, as always, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon.
Sounds good, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University speaking to us today from Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As uh, we reported last week, uh, Canada is donating four of the 112 German-made Leopard 2 tanks owned by the Canadian Army to Ukraine. Request, of course, was made some time ago, and uh, a number of other countries have already stepped up. Uh, Canada, the latest country to promise heavy weapons to aid in the fight against Russia. Chief of Defense Staff uh, General Wayne Eyre says getting the tanks over there is no small feat. We live in North America, and to get a 62-ton tank over there, it's going to take uh, take some doing. So over the last number of weeks, we've been planning, working behind the scenes to rapidly get this capability over there. Probably going to do it by our, with our C-17s. Uh, remember, we can only carry one tank per flight. Uh, so the effort to get those over is going to be something serious. So let's talk about the logistics, as, as the general just did, but also about Canada's commitment and what's going to happen going forward. And to do that, please to welcome back to the program Christian Leprec, who is a professor at both Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, and also a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. So Christian, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. The criticism I'm hearing in some circles, and I'm sure you have too, is only four tanks. Uh, is, is that a valid concern? Uh, sure it is. I mean, when when you need about uh, uh, you you need about a dozen or so to uh, operate effectively, and you need about a hundred or so together with about a hundred armored personnel carriers to move infantry and uh, um, about another sort of hundred artillery pieces or so in order to have a genuine um, offensive capacity and break through Russian uh, Russian lines. Uh, this is along a thousand sort of kilometer front, so you can imagine that four tanks on a thousand kilometer front probably aren't going to make a huge difference. But I think what part of this signals is that this was first and foremost not a military decision. It was a political decision. Mm -hmm. It was a political decision by NATO member allies to send enough tanks to make a difference and to send a strong signal to the Kremlin. Uh, but at the same time, not sending so many tanks that it could end up being humiliating for the Kremlin so as not to escalate. So I think this is a political signal by allies to suggest that uh, the Kremlin will not achieve its political ends on the battlefield and that the Kremlin is well advised to resort to political solutions to political problems or what it considers to be political problems rather than military solutions. Well, that sounds like a pretty delicate balance there. Who, who determines where you're going to draw that line between what may be aggressive and what may be just maybe what the Ukrainians could use for the time being without really escalating things? So we can do the math on this, right? So the military strategists say Ukraine probably needs about a 600 tanks really to ex have a chance of expelling the Russians from the entire territory that Russia has taken, occupied since 2014. Ukraine is asked for about two to 300. And as in any negotiation, you're always going to ask for the upper end, assuming that what you're ultimately going to get uh, is probably going to be lower than what you asked for and realizing that the Ukrainians are probably going to have to operate multiple different models of tanks, Abrams, Leclerc, Leopards, uh, Challengers at the same time. So this is logistically onerous. So there's sort of the sense, I think, here that um, the West will provide the equipment necessary that Ukraine is asking for. 
but is only going to provide it in such numbers uh, as to provide some sort of stability on the battlefield. So while some of the critics say, well, this is escalating providing tanks, this is very much intended to do the opposite. You will have heard lots of talk about a Russian potential spring or summer offensive. This is very much meant as a deterrent to Russia to engage in such activities, signaling to Russia that the West is determined to continue to provide the means for protecting Ukrainian sovereignty and for Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. I, I, that word balance comes up in the conversations a lot when we're talking about uh, NATO and other countries and their their support for Ukraine. Uh, there was a mindset, and I think you and I talked about this some months ago, uh, that some of the allies, although not publicly stating, were under, under the impression that they wanted to to make sure Ukraine didn't lose the war, but not necessarily win it. And I know that's a, a fine distinction. Uh, and do they want to maintain that idea? I mean, we, it is, I, I mean, obviously, President Zelensky wants to run these guys right out of the country, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. But are these tanks, not just Canada's commitment, but the other commitments as well, uh, going to make that much of a difference or in, in an aggressive fashion, or are they really just to, to keep the Russians where they are? Yeah, so this, of course, reminds us of a conversation we had very early on um, uh, when the Russians invaded about making sure that Ukraine does not lose. And yeah. these tanks do make a real difference. So there's no question that these tanks, even in the relatively small numbers and on the relatively long horizon with which they're going to be provided, given that you need to train the Ukrainians up and you need to build the supply chains and then you need to integrate them effectively into multi-domain and multi-armed combat armed warfare. So this will take some time, but they present a real problem in the sense that, for instance, qualitatively, they are significantly better than just about anything that Russia can field, increase, including its TU-90 tank. So it's sort of most uh, most advanced tank. Even just simple things such as the ability of all the equipment that's being provided in terms of tanks for Ukraine to be able to fight at night, um, which the Russians with most of their equipment are not able to do. And of course, if you want to have an element of surprise, uh, nighttime is always a great time to uh, to do that. So it really does provide significantly enhanced capabilities uh, to uh, to the Ukrainians. And if nothing else, would significantly complicate uh, Russia's ability not just to mount their own offensive, but also in relatively small numbers now, the Ukrainians would have the capability to pierce some of the Russian defenses and thereby cut Russian supply lines. So it means that Russia now has to reconfigure its defi entire defensive posture as a result of these capabilities. We talked in the, the first couple of months, especially uh, uh, in this conflict and in this war, about uh, Russians' uh, military strength. And uh, we know that they've suffered significant losses. Uh, what's their armory look like these days, Christian? I mean, they've lost a lot of tanks and, and troop carries and a number of things that they just left on the battlefield. So the most interesting short-form assessment that I've seen is that the United States has spent 5% in 2022 of its defense budget, effectively to destroy 50% of Russian military capability, certainly its land military capability. And of course, not a single U.S. soldier has died in that conflict. So if you look at this strategically in terms of uh, making it clear to the Kremlin that this was a terrible miscalculation, I think that's probably no better way to get that message across. Uh, and uh, Russia, it, uh, you can see that uh, the Russians are trying to reconfigure 
um, their command and control structure. They're trying to beef up their military industrial complex, but it's not clear that, for instance, you can fix the problems in terms of leadership, morale, but also the sclerotic Soviet kleptocratic bureaucracy that is endemic to the to Russian defense, to Russian defense industry, to the Russian uh, Ministry of Defense. And it also seems that Putin continues to be much more preoccupied with political dimensions internally of this conflict. So you'll remember the recent shuffle of generals. Yes, so this is taking an Air Force general out and putting Gerasimov as an army general in to kind of send a signal we're back to major land operations. But really, this was sort of a political move to try to contain um, the guy who heads the Wagner group that has sort of been trying to position himself in competition with uh, the Russian defense ministry. So there's also a lot going on here beside the scenes. And when you're changing generals every two, three months, let me tell you, that's not a signal for success. That's a signal that things are not going the way you want them to go. Let's talk about what's going to happen. You talked about the, the story, and President Zelensky's talked about the possibility of a major spring offensive by the Russians. Uh, now that tanks seem to be on the way, although, as you mentioned, they, they could certainly use more from, from all of the Allies, uh, they seem to be turning the conversation now to fighter jets. And uh, there's going to be an ask, and I, I imagine a major one. Uh, I don't know where Canada is going to fit into that request when it finally does come down the pipe here. We've got our own problems here trying to build our own here or buy our own. Uh, but it, it seems as if, a, if this has been a change of mindset, though, Christian, in the last maybe nine, ten months. I mean, I, I get the sense that the Allies are being more aggressive in supplying Ukraine uh, with weaponry to, to try to move this this conflict along. Yeah, you can see that the East, uh, the, the new NATO member countries are trying to accelerate this conversation, in particular Poland, of course, uh, whereas uh, some of the uh, original and Western members, in particular Germany, but to some extent also Canada, are kind of trying to slow roll this conversation. So I think there's two elements with regards to fighter jets that uh, Russia, of course, still does not have air dominance over Ukraine. Um, and this has been a major impediment for Russia to make inroads. And so there's a sense now that uh, Russia, that better Ukrainian air capabilities uh, will be integral both for Russia to retake land uh, and to be able to take out some of the launchers of missiles and so forth uh, that uh, have been causing such havoc on Ukrainian critical infrastructure. But I think this is also a conversation about how do we set up Ukraine for um, for a situation where there might be some sort of ceasefire or so that both sides could agree to, because we don't want to every five, six, seven, eight years go through what we went through in 2014 and in 2022, where then the Kremlin continues to uh, get adventurous and uh, try to take land. And let's remember, of course, the behavior that you're seeing from the Kremlin is how Russia has behaved towards its neighborhood and towards Ukraine for the past 400 years. So regardless of regime change in in the Kremlin, um, I think Ukraine is trying to position itself for a situation where it actually has the equipment to deter such Russian revisionism and adventurism in the future. But even if they're successful, and we hope the, the Ukraine army is successful in doing that, if not a stalemate, at least some sort of a, a retreat, uh, it seems as if any time there's been even a talk about negotiations, the Russian starting point seems to be, okay, but we're going to keep all the land that we've acquired in this battle. And, and, and there's no way Zelensky's going to agree to that, is he? 
Right. And I mean, the Russians are clearly not serious about negotiating. You're hardly serious yeah, about yeah. negotiating when you're pummeling your opponent's critical infrastructure and essentially making statements about, you know, not even recognizing their sovereignty or, uh, or, or their political authorities. So really, from the Russian perspective, currently, there's not much to negotiate. But ultimately, uh, these conflicts end in one of two ways. One is you have a, uh, an overwhelming victory by one side. That seems improbable given the asymmetries between Russia and Ukraine in terms of population size, economy, their militaries, and so forth. So if you're not going to have an overwhelming win by one of the two sides in the conflict, then the only out ultimately is going to have to be some sort of negotiated settlement. And to have a negotiated settlement, you need to put the Ukrainians in a very strong negotiating position. And that means, among other things, making sure that Ukraine has both the military and the financial backing to show to the Russians that the only way forward is ultimately for the Russians to make very serious concessions um, around the ambitions that they have demonstrated in recent years. For that to happen or to be effective, is a third party necessary? I know Turkey has suggested that they may want to get involved in that as, as, a, as a middle country. Uh, I guess there has to be an element of trust on both sides, though, doesn't there? Yeah, of course, trust is always in short supply when it comes to these sorts of conflicts. Um, and Putin is certainly playing the long game, hoping that he can wear down the West over the years to come. At the same time, this is becoming increasingly humiliating and difficult for Putin internally. We saw just how unpopular even the partial mobilization has been. And it looks like there's going to be more of a mobilization, um, among the, uh, among Russian sort of draftees. Uh, so, um, Putin is likely going to need some sort of way out of this uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, and I think simply having a conversation about now we're providing tanks, we might provide fighter jets, we might provide other advanced weaponry to, to Ukraine sends a signal to the Kremlin that, uh, you know, this hole is just going to keep getting deeper. So uh, it's in everybody's interest here to find some sort of solution. Certainly seems to be a pivotal time here. Christian, as always, thank you so much for your perspective on this. Really appreciate the conversation today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Christian Leprec from uh, uh, Oriel Military College and, of course, uh, Queen's University and McDonald-Laurie Institute with uh, some of the updates on what's going on in the Ukraine situation and more to come on that, certainly, with the ask for fighter jets. And uh, let's not forget, if we're uh, putting these things in perspective, uh, the announcement from Canada a week or so ago that they're going to be financing a missile defense program uh, for the Ukraines as well. As, very similar, I guess, to the one that the United States has already committed to. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tragic week, of course, in, uh, in the United States, specifically in Washington, here in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, with the release of the uh, the video of the arrest and beating of uh, a, a black man, of course, uh, Tyree Nichols, uh, his fatal arrest, actually, in Memphis. Uh, we've seen the video. It was put up there by uh, the, the police a couple of days ago. Uh, it's gut-wrenching. It's it's sickening to watch. And uh, and, and sadly, it's true. And it, it accurate depiction, of course, uh, from the body cams of the officers involved in that. Well, as a result of this, U.S. Capitol Hill lawmakers are responding to the body cam footage of uh, the murder, as, as some are calling it. It has to go through the trial, of course. On ABC's uh, This Week on the Sunday morning political shows, Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin calling on his colleagues to restart efforts to pass federal police reform. 
I think of the police reform package that Senator Booker was working on with Senator Scott. Uh, it had many elements in it that are important, uh, banning chokeholds, dealing with uh, no warrant uh, searches. And on and on it goes. The debate and uh, the reaction from uh, the folks in Washington on Capitol Hill uh, was fast and furious, but is it going to lead anywhere? That's one of the stories I want to talk about with our next guest. Uh, Jennifer Johnson is Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jennifer, thank you so much for the time. Good to talk with you again today. Thanks for having me, Bill. What are you, what are you hearing along the Beltway there because of this? I mean, the, the idea of police reform ebbs and flows, of course. Uh, there was the Ferguson incident a few years ago, George Floyd certainly, uh, and now this terrible incident. A uh, lot of talk, but not a whole lot going on here that in, in the way of results. Uh, is, is this the tipping point? Uh, I'm going to tell you that I doubt it. Um, I, so the, the specifically what we're talking about is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which yeah. was introduced after the horrific death of George Floyd. Um, people thought it had a, that it had a decent shot at passing Congress. Uh, as you said, Cory Booker and Senator Tim Scott, who are both black, were instrumental in crafting the bill, and it would ban certain deadly force practices by police officers, no-knock warrants, um, much more money and specific training for police officers. And the bill got through the House, and then there was no, um, other than Tim Scott, who supported the bill, no support by Republicans in the Senate, so it died in the Senate. So since this has happened with Tyree Nichols, and we all saw, or many of us saw, if you could stomach it, the horrific yeah. video of his death, uh, there's been an increased calls again for Congress to take up that bill and try to get it passed this time. The problem is it still doesn't have any Republican support. Jim Jordan was on Meet the Press yesterday saying mm -hmm. nothing could have stopped the death of Tyree Nichols. Uh, these officers were evil and nothing can be done. No amount of training could ch could change that. And there's many people in law enforcement who would disagree with this, that say if you train over and over and over, that even if things get out of hand, someone there has to stop it. These are the consequences. Every you know, Officers are wearing body cams. There's cameras up on light posts. Um, you know, you know, some like the training would have an effect that something would be triggered um, with these police officers to stop things before they got to, you know, things got out of control or got to the point where they got with Tyree Nichols. So it's very frustrating. And for a lot of Americans, because it's the same party line by the Republicans that they that they spew after mass shootings that nothing can be done it's just evil people who are mentally ill doing this nothing can be done and i think it's very frustrating for a lot of americans to hear nothing can be done and yet we're still watching black motorists getting pulled over for allegedly speeding or driving recklessly and being pummeled to death and mass shootings I, killing innocent people exactly i i I mean, you know, I, I couldn't watch the whole video, frankly. I turned it off after about four or five minutes. I, I couldn't stop. It was disgusting what was going on. Yeah, I and, and, you know, I the, mean, the I, fact I that they pursued him. I a lot of it, but it's, it's brutal. Well, yeah, I, I thought, okay, i got to watch this. I'm, I'm a journalist. I have to see this. So I, I, I went back a second time. But, God, it, it's it just something that stays with you. I mean, it, it, it's – I, I can't understand why, you know, as I say, because I, I saw Jordan on, on Meet the Press as well. Uh, but we've seen this act before, though, haven't we, Jennifer, where the Republicans just kind of circle the wagons and say, the answer is going to be no, uh, and here are the talking points, and they all sing from the same song sheet. It, it, and what's so frustrating about this was that Tim Scott described to fellow Republican senators what it's like for him to be 
a black U.S. senator and get pulled over for what he called driving while black over and over and over. I mean, he gave examples of at least 12 times that he simply was driving, not speeding, not swerving, not going through stop signs or stoplights, and pulled over because he was driving while black. And, you know, here is a black United States Republican senator from a conservative state, South Carolina, who couldn't convince his fellow colleagues this was a real problem. And so if he can't convince them, I don't know who can. Where does this, I mean, Washington, I, I would think, is going to feel pressure to respond to this. Uh, I, you know, we've heard, you know, some comments from the Biden administration, and we heard just Dick Durbin there just a couple of seconds ago before he joined us. Uh, you know, they're saying what needs to be said, but I, I, I was afraid when I heard this horrific story, though, Jennifer, and it seems that we're going down this road again of thoughts and prayers, and that's about it. Let's move on. Right. <laughs> yeah, thoughts and prayers, and nothing can be done. That's generally the Republicans' party line, that it's mentally ill people, it's evil police officers, and that nothing can stop it. And, you you know, it's frustrating, as I said, for many Americans to say, well, if this keeps going on, then at least try something, do something. But, you know, these California mass shootings of, you know, they're now no longer dominating the headlines, and there's crickets from the Republican-controlled House about introducing any gun control, further gun control bills. Uh, very frustrating circumstance. So we'll watch. I don't know if anything, anything's going to unfold, but we'll see. Uh, let me, i, I got to pivot because we only have a, a limited amount of time here uh, to the political scene here. Uh, Donald Trump went after Ron DeSantis. I guess he's finally realized that uh, uh, the polling seems to indicate that DeSantis is, is favored by an awful lot of Republicans, although uh, we would be naive to suggest that Donald Trump's days are over. He still has a lot of support right now. Uh, but he says that, uh, you know, that uh, DeSantis is trying to rewrite history with his COVID-19 response, uh, that he is actually uh, doing a great disservice to America and its history if he decides to run against Trump for the nomination. Uh, he, he A clear and present danger, I guess, as far as Trump's re-election campaign uh, chances are concerned. But uh, he's how, how is DeSantis going to respond to this? You know, DeSantis has taken an interesting tack, which he, he basically is he, he doesn't respond. He's not going to get into the muddy waters um, with Donald Trump, apparently. So he basically just, you know, keeps going on doing his job in, in Florida and doesn't respond. I mean, you know, what's interesting about what Donald Trump did in New Hampshire this past weekend was that he was using specifics when he targeted DeSantis, um, specifically about uh, the governor's COVID response. Um, before it was just insults. Like I made him, he'd be a nobody if it weren't for me. You know, we called him to sanctimonious because Donald Trump's always good with these little quippy insulting, you know, words to describe people. Um, but he did specifically go after him. You know, there was some meat to it. But, um, when I talk to Republicans, um, particularly the leadership, um, in the House and Senate, they're tired of Donald Trump. They're tired of the controversies. They're tired of, you know, all the ugliness, and they want to move in a different direction. You know, they're going to press the Republican National Committee, the RNC, to go in a different direction. And so the question is, are Republican voters going to go in a different direction? The moderate Republican voters I hear, I've had it with Donald Trump, but he still has a tremendous support in this country. He's tremendously popular. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the two of these guys will clash. You know, Ron DeSantis is not a, you know, he's an Ivy League college graduate. He's, he's a military man. He's not dumb. And it'll be interesting to see the two of them go head to head in a debate if it comes to that. 
But but DeSantis seems hesitant to actually go after Trump, though, doesn't he? Uh, you know, yeah. I, I understand there's still a Trump element to the party right now. Uh, but you, you, you've got to break the mold here. I mean, at some point, somebody's got to stand up and say, Trump, your time is over. And DeSantis doesn't seem to have that in him to, to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, not yet. I don't I think that DeSantis wants to to kind of stay under the radar. You know, there's always a worry of peaking too early in a presidential yeah. race. So you don't want to come out there and, you know, basically make it a one-on-one race. Um, I think his his plan of attack is I'm going to keep doing my job. You know, he keeps making headlines with various controversial things um, to try to get the far right to come on to, you know, his to support his campaign. Um, but I don't think at this point he wants to get into – um, a hissing match, if you will, with Donald Trump. Not yet. I don't think he thinks that that favors him. He needs to still win over the ultra conservatives who are still supporting Donald Trump. And so I think his next, you know, my guess would be the next attack would be um, perhaps abortion. There's still abortion allowed in Florida after 15 weeks. So I think he's still going to keep his eye on the ball, which is issues, and stay away from um, going head to head with Donald Trump for now. Uh, let me. I got I just saw the story yesterday. I got to get your read on this, Jennifer, because it's uh, it's a little frightening given what's going on in the global situation these days. Uh, a U.S. general is now predicting that uh, the country, the United States, uh, inevitably is going to go to war with China by 2025. Uh, this is a general, Mike Minahan, who's a four-star Air Force general who leads the Air Mobility Command, uh, said that, uh, my gut tells me we will fight in 2025 against the Chinese. And he's telling his his, uh, his soldiers and his fighters uh, to get ready for the inevitable uh, and be prepared. Uh, that's troubling enough. But uh, I, as I did some follow-up on this, and I, I know you've been looking at this story too, uh, a number of GOP lawmakers are agreeing with him and saying, yeah, let's go. Let's let's take on the Chinese. Is, is that where they're going on this? I mean, I can... I can tell you that there hasn't been a whole lot of traction um, in the United States with this story. Um, It certainly raised a lot of eyebrows that a four-star Air Force general would make this comment and then specifically, you know, say, oh, by 2025, we're going to be at war with China. Um, Nobody nobody wants that. And, um, you know, there might be some saber rattling, and I certainly, I know the American public doesn't want this, but... um, you know, it was apparently a leaked memo, and I, I I don't really have an answer as to why it was said. I mean, certainly there have been problems, particularly in the air, with China oh, sure. in that region. But um, to go to war with China, that's a, that's a stretch. Well, I mean, you know, if you're looking for political traction here, God knows there were enough issues to talk about with inflation and some of the other things happening uh, that they could go after the Biden administration. Why in God's name would they start saber-rattling and say, let's go to war with somebody? Uh, you know, that's uh, yeah. the old wag the dog thing. I thought, you know, we're on to that now, aren't we? Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, there's definitely the wag the dog thing on that one. And as you said, there's so many other things Republicans want to go after. I mean, they they are vowing to go after Hunter Biden. They're vowing to go after Joe Biden. Um, you know, there's they want a anti-abortion federal bill. Um, they're promising to cut government spending. The Oversight Committee chair is given a press conference as we speak, or he did a little about an hour ago. Um, he might be wrapped up by now talking about, you know, government spending and how much waste there are and where, where they're going to cut. Um, they've got a lot on their agenda and they've got two years to do it. So I, I don't know why, but um, I do believe that um, 
you know, this is a lot of saber rattling and, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But as I said, this, this story hasn't got a whole lot of traction in the U.S., so I think for good reason. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, it's not like other yeah. generals jumped on the, bo- you know, jumped aboard and said, oh, I, we agree. You know, it's like sort of been one guy and, you know, it certainly, raised, as I said, raised a lot of uh, eyebrows. Well, as uh, somebody who's a you know a political junkie like you are, and, and I, I love old movies too. I don't know how many old movies have been made about a rogue general that decides to go, you know, fail safe. And there's a, there's a long list, Seven Days in May. There's a whole bunch of lists yeah. like that. And they, I guess this is life imitating art for a change, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, I I had the same thought that you did. I was like, uh, are we wagging the dog here? What's going on here? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I was with you on that one, Bill. Well, uh, we'll uh, watch for your reporting on this. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this, Jennifer. All right, Bill. Thank you so much. You take care. Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. And boy, it's just a, a hotbed for stories. And uh, you, you expect the political back and forth and the headbutting going on between the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, but you'd think on something like like police violence and, and, and gun control, well, maybe not even gun control because the Republicans don't even seem to want to go there. But I, I guess the thing that frustrates an awful lot of people is, uh, you know, we have people like Rich O'Connell and, and Trump totally disses this guy, insults him, insults his wife uh, and goes back and forth and, and basically says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Yet they stay true to this guy and, and to these hard right political views on things like gun control. I mean, police violence is police violence. And nobody is suggesting, I don't think anyway. That that you know that this is in the DNA to be an officer. You have to be a violent individual who's going to. Of course not. But you're not going to get rid of the problem. Yes, these are violent people. Of course they are. Jim Jordan's absolutely right that they are. But how do you how do you weed them out? How do how do these people get a uniform? How do they get the club? How do they get the gun if they have these points of view? And how deep is is that? I don't think it's widespread, but it certainly exists, and it's not just in Memphis. But they don't want to talk about it. Just pretend it's not there and it'll just go away. That's disgusting and frankly, 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 a, a very scary uh, political point of view. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.